river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snowcap peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. Track Quest, James and Bob here. What's going on, buddy? Yeah, man. Um, these winter months are tough. Rain, rain, rain. Uh, but the only good thing about this rain is steelhead are in the rivers. Yeah, he, he caught one the other day too, didn't he? Yeah, I've been hooking a couple and landed one and we had it for dinner and it's pretty awesome. I'm looking forward for the rain to let up and the rivers to come down a little bit, get back out there. But yeah, all, all I've really got my mind in is on the desert i i was even watching a movie with the wife the other night and they were in some sagebrush country and like i got lost in the movie just looking into like not paying attention to the movie and looking into the background of the movie just <laughs> imagining myself back in the high desert yeah long long cold wet winters make you want some sunshine and chase some big mule deer yeah for sure um, this, uh, podcast we just did with a couple studs, like, like we're always trying to deliver to you guys. And we definitely covered some, uh, some politics and, and then we got in, got into the desert, uh, mule deer hunting, uh, once again with these guys. So, uh, why don't you tell them, uh, who we had on and what we're talking about, Bob? Well, we had, we had two guys on this time, a couple, uh, repeat podcasters on here we had brian kelzer you guys know he's been on a couple times we had him on white tails and then mule deer and he's an absolute stud if you guys haven't listened to those james james will let you know which ones they were he said on the podcast but. yeah it was uh 62 and 82 uh 62 for the white tails 82 for the mule deer uh desert mule deer hunting and that one was a gem of a podcast yeah He's a heck of a hunter, that's for sure. Super humble guy, so always an honor and a pleasure to have him on. And we also had uh, Jim Willems, the Pope and Young Club president. We had him on. Episode Eighty-five. Eighty-five. And uh, yeah, he's a good, good guy. They're coming out with their uh, newest edition of their traditional archery record book, and he had a heck of a season. So we didn't even get to cover all of it. We ran out of time, but we talked about the meal there. Yeah, we talked about the meal deer. We talked about the new record book coming out, which uh, I think is uh, another exciting addition for uh, promoting traditional bow hunting. And um, I'm excited to get my hands on that and, and see what they put out. I think it sounds like it's going to be a great publication. Um, and we, like always, try to find a room to talk a little, politi- little politics, talk some shop. And we got into the traditional bow hunting opportunities um you know we've created some in our state and you guys are you know you may get tired of hearing us talk about it but we're passionate about it and we'll continue to uh, talk about it and if uh it's something that interests you guys and you wonder you know how how does one get these opportunities in their state well you just have to get involved uh with your state organizations and feel free to uh get a hold of me or Bob or uh, traditional archers of Oregon 
And uh, we're always more than willing to help uh, point you guys in the right direction on uh, how to get the ball rolling. Yeah, for sure. Get a hold of us, tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we talked a little bit about changes in Colorado and, and a lot of stuff that's going on. So if any of you guys are specifically from Colorado and want to talk, shoot us an email. Any other questions you have or thoughts, just let us know. We're decent about getting back to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need to find someone, uh, listeners from Colorado, that wants to come on and talk with, uh, a little bit about the politics in Colorado. I know that you guys are facing some uh, reintroductions to wolves. I know you guys are facing uh, more controlled hunts. Um, you know, these are definitely hot topics and, uh, something we're not scared to take on. So, you know, if there's any one out there that wants to talk to us a little bit about us, uh, about it to us or educate us on, uh, some of the facts, cause we don't always get everything right or correct. Um, we're open to the information and, uh, like Bob said, you can hit us up at tragquestpodcast at gmail.com. Um, what else do we got going on, Bob? got our banquet coming up today actually is and this podcast will probably come out in two days so <laughs> it'll be too late i guess but today is the last day to register for the banquet um if you're listening to this and you missed the date then uh get a hold of us maybe we can make something happen i'll see if we can yeah I, I, or something but yeah i can't promise but I, they usually try to hold a couple extra spots for the for the last minute guys but i can't promise that that yeah, that, that, that we'll does do happen um, we'll do our best we got bill mcconnell who we've had on who's an absolute stud actually hunts with real bows sticks and rocks <laughs> and we all cheat but he is a stud we got him as our saturday night banquet speaker we got jim akinson doing a mule deer seminar we got all kinds of good raffle stuff. Carson's drumming up. We got Larry D. Jones is giving away one of his bows. A signed bow yes. and, a, and a quiver full of signed arrows. Yes. Um, we've gotten some really good donations. Um, me and Carson, uh, mostly Carson, but I've been helping on, on that. And, uh, Jason Sankoviak has donated some DVDs. Um, we got, uh, the guys from Werewolf Broadheads and Eclipse Broadheads. Um, I mean, man, just so many great companies have reached out, uh, and sent us stuff, uh, arrows, shafts, broadheads, everything, you name it. So the table's going to be loaded this year for the raffle. And if you guys live in driving distance, and even if you don't, can't quite make the banquet dinner, um, the seminars are available during the day. Um, the raffle, uh, you know, just come, come stop in and say hi and hang out. Um, yeah, you're more than welcome to do that. We'll be there at a little vendor table with some shirts and hats and, and our new stickers. Stickers. If uh, yeah. that actually happens. And then, uh, no, no, that's already happened. They're made. I'll be bringing them. Yeah. And I don't know. Have you got the vendor list yet? Usually it's, uh, Blacktail Bows is there, Norm and, uh, uh Alan, Alan Boyce. Liberty Longbows and John Strunk and yeah. Riley will be there with his archery pass. So all those guys will, all those, all those same guys. I don't know if there's any new ones popping up this year. I'm not on that part of the board. So, uh, there's a good little place to hang out and I think, uh, Chuck's usually there scoring racks and stuff, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Pope and Young will be there to scoring racks. Chuck uh, will be representing Pope and Young to score racks. And um, there'll be, uh, yeah, just a bunch of guys hanging out. I know uh, after the banquet we're going to try to do a little get-together somewhere and, and hang out throughout the evening. And so, yeah, if you guys are new to traditional archery or you're just being antisocial, stop it. Come Come hang out with us. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't yeah, care. That's, that's coming right up. Not this weekend, which starts tomorrow, but next weekend. So yeah, get, get out there and see us. It's in the great town of Albany, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll. So yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing, uh, all our, uh, the usual guys. And, and I know there's some new faces that are uh, set to be there. So I'm looking forward to seeing you guys all there. And now's a good time for us to pay our thanks to the guys that support the podcast and keep this uh, on the air, our Patreon supporters. Um, Bob, why don't you tell guys a little bit more about Patreon and how they can support us and what we're going to do for our supporters today. Well, if you guys listen to the podcast, you know we're usually doing a giveaway every podcast. Um, all these great traditional archery companies send us stuff, and we give it away to you. So if you guys want to help support us, that's the only way that we make anything to pay the bills. Go on patreon.com forward slash tradquest. Get signed up. It's pretty easy. There's three tiers. For five bucks a month, you can join we also have some sweet discounts for you guys from some great companies if you uh, decide to go the 15 dollar route or the 30 dollar route longbow or self-bow tiers get get a little bit better discount so yeah and if uh, you are a traditional archery company and you're listening to this podcast and you're wanting to help support us um, go ahead and send us a email and uh, if you guys would like to donate uh, some product, uh, we can take that product and give it away to our Patreon supporters. That's kind of how we're running this. And and in return, um, we will uh, uh, pay some uh, attention to your company and, uh, you know, support us so we can support you. For sure. Awesome. Well, let's... Uh, Let's do a giveaway. I love giving stuff away. All right, we got uh, we got a bear archery knife and ten set. So the ten sets, uh, they're commemorative Fred Bear pocket knife and coin, uh, Fred Bear coin. So it's a, it comes in a cool little ten. And uh, what's what's bear archery hat? We'll throw in with it. All right. So and, thanks to uh, the guys at Bear Archery and our, our, our buddy Chris Perino at Bear Archery. We appreciate you guys. Thanks for supporting the podcast and drum roll. We got, we got Brady Donahue. Brady Donahue. Yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> Where's he at? Was he an Oregon resident? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we got a local. Awesome. Well, so thank awesome. you. Thank you, Brady. Over to Brady. And, uh, if you guys, like I said, go on patreon.com forward slash tradquest. And if you guys, uh, don't want to join our Patreon and don't, aren't all computer savvy and you just love our podcast, you can go onto our website at tradquest.com. We got shirts and hats on there. Um, 
order them up. And if you uh feeling frisky that month and you just want to donate some money, there's just a donate button. You can donate some money for the cost, help us pay the bills. Yep. And, and we have uh hats and stuff. And, we've got some really cool window decals, like the real, real nice, uh, low profile. Um, I don't know what the technical term is, but real nice window decals, uh, that'll be available and we'll get those up on the website soon. If you guys want to support the podcast that way, we'd appreciate it. And, uh, I hope you guys enjoy the show. All right. Well, we got all four of us on here. We'll, uh, it's kind of hard not to talk over each other, so don't worry about it. But we'll tr- we'll try to do our best not to interrupt. But we'll just okay. get it started. So we got Brian Kelzer and Jim Willems. Jim, of course, the Pope and Young president, and you guys have heard Kelzer on here a couple times. And uh, Jim got a hold of me the other day. He's pretty excited. He's got a new traditional archery record book coming out. He want to get on here and promote it. And he and Brian also had an epic season with their bows. And we'll uh, get to. Shooting the crap, tell some hunting stories for you guys. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This this is a pleasure. Yeah, we uh we enjoyed yeah, our last yeah, conversation. I know you you guys uh that listened to the Don Thomas interview, we pretty much beat up on the Pope and Young real hard and and I had Brian call me and tell me, Well, they do a lot of good things. We he's super involved in Montana and and uh then Jim got a hold of me and so yeah, we we appreciate you guys coming on and talking about the good stuff. So Brian, maybe you could uh just start out with talking about how you're involved and the the good things they do in Montana. Oh, Pope and Young does good things everywhere. Um, well, I got involved when I finally got my first, I shouldn't say finally, it took me a few years, but in 97, I killed my first Pope and Young whitetail and entered it and became a member. And then after my 15-year uh associate membership i applied for regular membership in that was 2002 and got accepted as a regular member and have been a regular member ever since and been to every convention since 99 um and it's just you know it's 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 what everybody talks about when you talk about archery uh you know archery kills you know everybody always bases it off of Pope and Young score and my dad's an official scorer so I grew up watching you know people bring their critters over and get it scored at the dining room table and stuff so it's just it's always been a part of my life and a thing so I'm happy to be a regular member and be able to help to promote and preserve it and you're involved in Montana don't you teach some bow hunting ed classes and hunter safety and all that too I do. I have been a bow hunter edu- education instructor for 16 years now. Um, I'm the current sitting vice president of the Montana Bow Hunters Association. And uh, we have reached out and had help from the Pope and Young Club in uh, multiple issues we've had over the years here in Montana. And it's nice to have a big brother like Pope and Young, you know, have our back on, on things. So, yeah, I'm I'm involved to say the least as well as Compton's and PBS and uh, traditional bow hunters of Montana and bow hunters of Wyoming. Very cool. So, so Jim, when, when did, when did the first edition, cause this is the second edition of the record book that came out, right? The traditional only one. No, no, this is actually the third edition. The so third. Uh, the first edition came out in 2007 and we typically do, um, our, our books, for the most part, they're on six-year cycles. 
So uh, we did seven, um, 11, and, or no, I guess there was not. Yeah, let me think back. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was seven, 13, and then 2019 was when we were supposed to do this one. And we had some glitches. We just we just didn't get it done, so it's actually coming out in, in 2020. Uh, but just the history of the, of the traditional record book, um, uh, a, a pretty large number of our older members are traditional bow hunters. Uh, you know, back in the day, that was the only option you had. And uh, some of them were like me, where they started out with a, a compound bow. Um, you know, in the late 70s, it, it, it was just such an amazing new thing. Uh, even a lot of uh, traditional guys tried it out. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of like a lot of guys are today, uh, especially some of the younger guys. I felt like the using the sights and, uh, uh, you know, if you could estimate yardage, you could shoot fairly well. And, you know, after just a few years, I, I felt like that just, for me, that wasn't really what I wanted out of bow hunting. So, so I switched to a, a recurve bow back then. And uh, I was one of those guys that just decided to switch and sold the compound. And, you know, I pretty much had to do that to afford to buy a recurve bow. So uh, I switched and, and never looked back. Um, you know, and, and through our history, the, the compound bow really has helped bow hunting, um, whether you like it or not. Just the, uh, it got so many more people involved because it, it is, we all know, it is easier to learn how to shoot it. It's easier to be uh, you can be accurate, uh, much more quickly. And, uh, so the compound bow, it, it literally has taken over bow hunting. And when we get talking about records, you'll, uh, you'll understand to just what extent, but, you know, over the years, we, we wanted to, um, recognize, uh, part, part of our history and recognize the guys that, that wanted to do something that, that was harder. And, uh, you know, you guys know the difference between shooting a, a recurve bow in a hunting situation and shooting a compound bow. Um, there's probably a bigger difference in those two than there is today between a muzzleloader and a centerfire rifle. So it, it really is two different things, even though they're, they're both archery and, uh, just about every place you hunt, they're, they're both accepted as archery. So, uh, um, so yeah, we wanted to recognize what the traditional bow hunters had done. So, like I said, the first edition came out in 2007, and six years later we had our second edition, and and now we're working on our third one. And really, did you get any? I mean, did you guys get negative feedback from the the members for wanting to start a traditional record book? Because I know, I mean, as you know, James and I are put a lot of work into getting some separate areas for traditional archery and and uh we get a lot of negative feedback there did you guys have that when you started it you know I, i'm gonna say yes but I, I wasn't involved with the board for the first edition so uh i'm just going by what people have told me and and yeah certainly they got some feedback and there was there was a lot of concern about dividing our our ranks division among amongst our ranks you hear that all the time and we we still hear that to some extent, um, but you know we're such a small minority of the bow hunting community overall. Um, it's it's just it's not that 
I don't think it's a bad deal to recognize somebody doing something a little bit different. You're not certainly not taking anything away from anybody else. Yeah, exactly. Jim, do you feel that you guys have gotten more acceptance over time with the with the the traditional archery book? Uh, you know, having that separation to recognize the 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 men and women that are hunting with traditional gear. Do you feel like over time, as the technology increases and the um, education between the two that you're there's less kickback towards uh having a traditional archery record book for pope and young yeah that's absolutely the case yeah the the, the people who are opposed to it now are really a, a very small minority and uh um you know they're re- really their only argument is you know we we don't want to be revi- uh, denied divided we want to be one team and, and, you know, there's some validity to that, but other than that, it's fairly well accepted and, and it's a really cool book, uh, for, for us, uh, traditional hunters. Um, it, it's a great resource for us to look at and, and enjoy. I know we're finding the same thing here in Oregon, having a history of, uh, having some traditional only hunts. And when those were first introduced, that there was the same concerns. And now here in 2020, we're getting uh, really good support from both sides. We, we they've come to realize that it's not about a separation; it's just about um, uh, honoring um, and creating opportunity for a lesser weapon. Yeah, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. So yeah, tell us tell us a little more about that book and how uh, I can only imagine that uh, the entries are uh, a lot fewer than uh, uh than with modern tackle could you tell us maybe a little bit of statistics on how that breaks down if you don't mind yeah we'll do that and and to be honest I, I i'm really surprised i'm always surprised about this um we typically have about 3000 entries a year uh you know somewhere between 2800 and and 3000 and we only get at the most 100 entries per year from traditional equipment uh, I, I was kind of surprised that in the last six years since we did our last book, we've only had 533 entries uh, with traditional equipment. So you're looking at right at 3% of the total entries in the Pope and Young Club come from traditional hunters. Well, I, I find that actually pretty right on because from my calculations, at least on on a state level here in Oregon, it seems like we make up for about that two, three percent um, across the board. I mean, that's kind of the numbers I've always come up with, even looking at other states. So maybe that those things they correlate for for a reason. Uh, what's your guys' opinion? Yeah, you're probably right. Then, but the problem I have is, you know, I, I have a whole lot of friends that hunt with traditional equipment, so I feel like it that number should be way higher just on my life experience. Uh, sure. But it is, you know, it. it that is correct. I, I, I think it's correct. But then also I'm, I'm a little disappointed in those numbers because for the most part, all of the guys I know that are traditional hunters are pretty successful um, because they're fairly experienced and, and you know, if they, they go hunting, they, they get something. Uh, so so once again, even though we might be 3% of the bow hunting population, I'd like to think that we're, I'd like to think we're more successful than the average bow hunter, but then once again, that's probably just from my life experience and not reality. Your, your perspective. Yeah, I, I get that. It, it's easy to have that perspective if you 
attend a traditional only bow shoot and, and, uh, you know, hang out with guys that shoot traditional bows. But then I go to, um, we had a, uh, stick and sage out here in Oregon. It's a traditional, uh, 3D bow shoot. And that same weekend down the road, they were having a Northwest mountain challenge. They were about five miles apart, maybe 10 miles apart, same weekend. And I think we had, uh, right around a hundred shooters at the traditional shoot. And I believe they had like 5,000 shooters down the road. Um, so it was, it was a, you know, I, I attended both and it was quite the, uh, different atmosphere for sure. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we have kind of back the same deal around. Oh, there, there's yeah, a on top of each other. Sorry. <laughs> That's I was going to say, we can have the same deal around here. Um, I was doing math in my head here for the number of bow stamps sold in Montana as a, and as opposed to like numbers of, uh, uh, members of traditional bow hunters of Montana and stuff and that, two, three percent. And that's about right. And the traditional shoots around here gather, you know, a hundred and some, and the, the fancy shoots they have that come through that they set up on the ski hills and all that bring in thousands, but all the targets and all the courses are, I mean, a close shot's 40 yards. And most of them are out there, 70, 80, a hundred. And hell, I couldn't carry enough arrows to go shooting at a rocky hillside all the way down with a uh, hundred yard shots all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I don't want to make something clear. We're not having this podcast to beat up on uh, compound bows. Uh, you know, we do like and respect all bow hunters. Um, we want to promote traditional uh, archery just the same as the Pope and Young Club. And I think that what you guys are doing with having this uh, book is just help showing uh, the difference and and uh, the underline it. I think it helps pr- promote it and it helps get some of these guys uh, if they're going to, maybe they're not going to give up their compound, but maybe they're going to dabble and try a little bit of longbows and recurves. And I think it's the best thing we can do is to, you know, put it in a positive light and show that uh, it's uh, an ethical, viable weapon. And, um, you know, I, I commend you guys for doing what you guys are doing. Yeah, and that, that's the main reason for this book is is to, just like when the Pope and Young Club was first founded, uh, our idea was to quantify our successes to show game and fish departments that we could uh, we could have an impact and and of course there was a lot of us and and we could actually go out and and have have an impact on the wildlife and and enjoy our time out there. Well, we're still traditional bow hunters and we can still do that. So so that's the main reason for this book and especially today there there is a resurgence in traditional bow hunting and and i think you know in my lifetime it seems like it's kind of cyclical uh and i don't know why that uh for a while it'll be just kind of static and then something will happen something will trigger it that makes people want to do it again and i don't know if it's a movie or if it's a celebrity or or uh you know a particular famous hunter is doing it um and, and i really don't care what it is but we do have a resurgence right now and and traditional is is getting bigger so we're going to highlight that with our record book and uh and the theme of this um this book is uh transitioning to traditional and we we have a a two-part series from uh, aaron snyder on his transition um nick white from kansas he's he's doing a story about his transition 
And and then we're going to have some more, you know, a lot of other articles in there. South Cox is contributing. And uh, um, there's an article in there about uh, uh, the quest for the biggest typical whitetail taken since Mel Johnson's um, world record buck, the, the biggest typical taken with a recurve bow since Mel Johnson's world record buck in 1965. I think that's a pretty cool story. Oh, and, that sounds uh, great. Great book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it. It sounds like a great book and um, just another great way to uh, highlight our lifestyle for sure. Um, I, I think that also, I think me and Bob talk about this a lot with technology increasing and increasing in our lives um, in every facet. Um, you know, YouTube is so cluttered with stuff. The Internet is so full that I think guys are starting to want to go back to picking up a book, a magazine, a DVD, um, you know, picking up a longbow, a recurve. I mean, people are starting to look for, to go backwards in technology. At least a group, a certain group of people are, you know, they, they've become, uh, almost too clustered with all the nuances and, and want to go back to simpler times. I know that that is an attraction for me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's the attraction for just about all of us. Uh, we certainly don't do it because it's easier. Uh, we do it for the, either the purity of, of the, uh, the traditional bow or to make it a little more difficult to, to challenge ourselves. Um, but you know, there are, there are instances when I'm hunting where I don't feel disadvantaged at all with a recurve bow. Uh, it just kind of depends on the animal. You know, certainly if I'm hunting bighorn sheep, or high country mule deer, uh, you're you're at a big disadvantage because you can't shoot as far. You shouldn't shoot as far. Uh, but you know, on a lot of things like uh, if you're hunting on the ground, something up close like a, a black bear spotting stock, there's a big advantage of not having to break over the bow. It's it's just smoother and less movement, and and I think it gives you an advantage on the animal. So so we we have to recognize that as well. Sure. I mean, they're definitely a lot quieter and that, that can be an advantage when you're in, in close counters. That's for sure. Certainly. Okay. So I don't, I don't want to ramble on too much about the book. Uh, we're, we're in the uh, publishing phase. We, we still don't even have all of the articles, uh, finished. We pretty much have them in hand. We're doing some editing and trying to make them fit and whatnot. Uh, but within about two weeks, we're going to send out a, uh, a message, probably start with, social media and, and of course, email to anybody we have an email for about um, pre-ordering the book. The, the book is going to uh, sell for $40 and it's going to be, it's a hardcover book with color photos. We're going to have 40 to 50 trophy photos within it, within the book, maybe more. We're, we're not quite there yet. Um, and the book's going to be available at the end of March, but we are printing a limited edition. We have, uh, the Pope and Young Club has historically printed more books than we needed. And, you know, our, our theory in the past was, well, well, we'll sell them over time. But, you know, we we didn't sell them over time and, and books aren't selling like they used to. So we're we're printing uh, only 500 of these books and first come, first serve. And uh, um, and the reason we're doing 500 is because that's about what we sold of the last one. So. You know, if you have the last one and you want another one, you should be able to get it. But like I said, it's limited edition and 
we're going so, to announce it here in two weeks and put it up for sale. So I'm guessing uh, we've missed the deadline. Anyone that's harvested animals in 2019, it's too late to get their uh, animals entered into that book. It, it is. The cutoff yeah. was December 31st. Yeah. Copy. In two weeks, we'll we'll be able to get on there and get our pre-order, right? That's correct. Okay, cool. Yeah, and we'll we'll shoot something out on Instagram too and stuff. And if you guys sell 500, you're gonna print some more. Or just that's it. You know, just it depends on how quick they sell. Okay. If there's a demand for it, we will print some more. And but you know, if books are a funny thing. You do have a limited number you can purchase. So uh, you know, if we don't sell out until June or July. That might tell us well. Well, we we were only about fifty short or a hundred short of what what the demand was, and we may not be able to. Um, you, you just kind of deal with that when it happens. But sweet. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm Are you guys sitting thing. on any uh, leftover books right now from the first two printings? We are. Yes. And if you you get online, um, you can buy both of them for. You know, I'll just look at it real quick. We can talk about something else. I looked at it a while back, but um, yeah, they're pretty cheap right now. And and also, we're probably going to do. You know, this book is forty dollars. Um, I'm going to propose that we offer all three books as long as we have the extras for you know probably seventy dollars, fifteen a piece for the other two. There you uh, go, James and Bob. Those those first two books are my favorite record books, and I've got every. Pope and Young record book ever printed um, a couple copies of a few of them and I go to these traditional books 10 times more than I do any of my other ones. I love them. So oh, cool. So is just about every other traditional book because it's a fair comparison of of what we do. You know, you're not comparing yourself to, to everybody else. You're comparing yourself to people that do exactly the same things you do. Old picks too. I just love it. It never gets old. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Yeah, so you can, the the first two editions they're thirty dollars a piece, or you can buy both of them as a set for forty dollars. Um, if if you want to wait a couple of weeks, you'll probably be able to get all three of them for seventy dollars somewhere in there. So awesome! Very cool. Very cool. Um, so what is what is your uh, opinion? I don't know if we'd asked you this in the last podcast, but uh, what is your opinion? on like what we are doing out here in Oregon where we're not taking away opportunity from compound hunting, but creating new hunts, uh, in, in spaces that, that don't have hunts existing for traditional only equipment. Cause we kind of feel like it's a, one of the best ways in today's age to grow our ranks is to create opportunity without incentive. Um, it, it, it kind of, it, a lot of guys aren't too motivated. Um, how, how do you guys feel about that? Well, I'm just talking from my opinion. I can't really give an opinion on the Pope and Young Club uh, because cause that's a big issue that would take some debate and consideration. Sure. And, of course, the board would have to weigh in. on. But well, my personal opinion is I think it's a great idea, especially if you're not taking anything away. Um, yeah. Because the reality is uh, we have become more successful than anybody ever intended us to be. Uh, as far as the number of animals we killed per tags that are, are available, and and that's become an issue. And another issue is a lot of states where they allow crossbow, 
that number has just skyrocketed up higher than the uh, the, the rifle percentage success rate. So if if we can start at one level, creating an opportunity for uh, a type of hunting like we were originally that is lower success that gives uh, considerably more uh, days in the field with less impact on the on the resource. Then let's do that because it could that could trickle over into the the crossbow issue um, where you know if we do it at this level then okay let's do it at the next level and maybe we'll start to see some separation between the the compound bow and the crossbow like it should have been from the beginning they they simply aren't even close to the same animal yeah so, I, I, yeah. I 100% agree with the, with that, Jim, and and uh, definitely taking away from uh, other user groups is definitely in no way our, our uh, direction that we want to go. And as a matter of fact, we've just added a one-week extension in the North Fork of the John Day Wilderness in Northeast Oregon, an elk hunt, um, 55 tags for traditional only. And we were supported by uh, all bow hunters on uh, moving forward with that. Um, their vision is that the department's not going to add on to a already lengthy season with this uh, um, with a compound bow. But if we can get um, an extensions, if we can uh, fill in spots where we don't have hunts with traditional equipment, it's an opportunity for all bow hunters. It's anyone. Uh, can go and buy a longbow and a recurve and become proficient with it. It's not about doing something for the trad guys. It's about creating opportunity for bow hunting. Yeah, even in New Mexico, we we haven't done that or tried to do that with archery equipment, but there are a couple of units for muzzleloader that are designated for traditional muzzleloader only, which is, uh, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to it, but I think it's it's gets back to the traditional cap and ball, you know, the external percussion cap. And and no sabots and and no uh, pellets and and that sort of thing and nobody complains about that. In fact, I think people kind of enjoy that. So it's it's well, the I, same just different equipment. So uh, I'm really proud to see what you guys are doing out there and and uh, I look forward to that being a success and and maybe it can trickle down to other places. Absolutely. What's that hunt that's happening back east, Bob? The Mountain Man Heritage Hunt? Yeah, it's in West Virginia. They're calling it a Mountain Heritage Hunt, and it's <clears throat> I think they're taking those bow only counties. There's like four or five counties that are bow only, and they added like a week January season that they're calling this Mountain Heritage Hunt, and it's longbow recurve or flintlocks. So well, that's pretty interesting. And then I can get into Utah that. this year, I just heard that Utah is, they added some rut mule deer hunts. A couple of them, I haven't seen their new regs. I just heard this, so if I'm off a little bit, you guys don't light me up out there. But they're calling them ham hunts, handgun archery muzzleloader, which I think that Utah's done in the past. But the unique thing about it this time is they added no scopes on your muzzle loaders or no scopes on your handgun. So it's, it's uh, no optics. I believe they put on the, on the weapons. So that's a, you know, that those are good little steps. And, you know, going back on, like you're talking about New Mexico, I hunted elk down there in one of the, there's four or five units down there that are, and Jim, you probably know more about this than me, but they were 
primitive weapon only hunts that they started back in the nineties, I think. And, uh, now they're shooting, those muzzle loaders are shooting five, there goes guys are 500 yards down there. <laughs> so they're basically a single shot rifle now, so. Yeah, they are. And, and sadly, kind of like with the, with the introduction of the crossbows, you can tell the difference. The trophy quality has gone way down. The age, age structure is way down, um, because they're more successful and maybe not, um, drastically more successful in a percentage wise basis, but, but they are drastically more successful in, in killing the bigger bulls that are harder to get close to. So, so all of those things make a difference. And, and those were, you know, we have to get back to, did we, did we really intend this to be a primitive hunt from day one, uh, which we've gotten away from or, uh, or, or is it what we're doing now? Is, is that okay? So. Uh, yeah, I like what you guys are doing, and it'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, and, and I I know from like uh, playing devil's ab- advocate on the other side, you know, some states like Montana, um, which Colzer could speak on, uh, have very liberal seasons, and guys could say, well, what do we need that for? We've got all this opportunity. Um, why why would we need something separate? Um, but I know that, I mean, we can get into Colorado. Um, is going to affect everybody's state. Um, the more that we go to controlled and the more, uh, the less opportunity we have and the more crowded our woods get, um, we're going to have to find a way to manage that and keep opportunity at, at some level. And the traditional bow really lends itself to creating those kind of opportunities. Um, maybe we can get into that conversation. Well, I, yeah, I think you guys are. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was going to hop in and say, uh, yeah, we're kind of seeing some of the same stuff in Montana right now, too. And, and Colorado is certainly going to affect Montana for opportunity, um, mostly on elk. I'm really curious to see how you guys' Oregon stuff goes um, and, and how it could, like you said, the trickle-down effect and kind of maybe be the, the role model for this. But we do – we have so much opportunity here in Montana. I mean, we're we're 10 months straight that we can hunt big game of some sort in Montana. So we have very little opportunity to try to interject something traditional only ish without taking away from someone else. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, uh, I mean, shy of maybe some early, like late August mule deer hunting somewhere because we, we just don't have. Well, what about, what about Brian? If I don't know what the situation is in Montana, but like Colorado, where it, the overcrowding is becoming so much, it's it, we're, they're going to lose opportunity just through controlled hunts. So it's not like you're, you're you're not just taking away, you're taking away from everybody once that happens. And so uh, agreed. It, yeah. So yeah. an yeah. answer could be. Sorry, go ahead, James, but just for go guys ahead. that don't know what we're talking about. Um, what was it? Two weeks ago, the commission in Colorado approved 16 of their, that were general elk hunt that anybody could go buy a tag. Now they've announced that they're going to control 16 more units. And I believe there's only, and again, don't quote me on the exact numbers. I believe there's only five controlled elk hunts, archery elk hunts in Colorado. Now there's going to be like 23 or my numbers are off there. Obviously that would be 21, but. But I think there's going to be 23 total now, and they're talking about – they're basically saying, like, this is the first round of it. We're going to 
probably control all of them. And, and a lot of guys are saying, well, that's great. You know, it's going to solve the overcrowding issue, which, yeah, I mean, something has to be done. And this is where James and I are trying to get ahead of that is maybe instead of controlling it, you know, at least in a few areas, you know, instead of losing that general season opportunity, why don't we switch a couple of those to traditional and then we wouldn't have to control it. So then if a guy from, you know, the Midwest wants to come out and elk hunt, he can still go elk hunting because like we, like we're talking about the trickle down of controlling Colorado isn't just going to affect Colorado. You, you guys know what I'm saying, right? No, they're all coming to Montana, <laughs> Montana and Idaho and Oregon. The last few, uh, over the counter hunts and, and even Oregon is, Yep. is Northeast Oregon is getting so overcrowded that uh, they're going to keep adding controlled hunts because the overcrowding. I was just listening to the Meat Eater podcast with Stephen Ranella, and he was talking about how archery elk hunting is such a special thing. And in Colorado, it, the overcrowding, it's like it's not even special anymore. Um, because it, 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 you have so many guys crammed into the woods, yeah, the special is wearing off, and you know it's it's turning pushing the elk into private and private properties cost so much to hunt. You guys know how it all how it all trickles down, and then we go to controlled and guys wait two years, five years, seven years, nine years to get a tag in a place they used to get to hunt every year. Um, and so there's got to be a way to you know maybe not. Uh, make the whole state traditionally that's that's ridiculous but maybe leave a couple areas general and, and have that uh the guys that are willing to uh, put in their time still can create opportunity for themselves and you're going to have a lower impact on the wildlife as we all know and uh it, it breaks down to uh, science uh for the department and for the population. Has this been brought up to anybody in Colorado, uh, this conversation or this notion of some traditional or restricted uh, weapons kind of units? Um, I Last year when I heard they, them start talking about it, I did get a hold of a gentleman who was on the, the what is it, the Colorado Traditional Archery, the, whatever, they're on their board. I talked to him quite a while about it. And was basically trying to get him to plug it to the board you know, before this stuff started happening, I need to get back a hold of him and uh, and speak on it. But he was he was basically like, "Hey, you know, twenty years ago or whatever, we decided, you know, we're just going to stay all in it together because we don't want to have this division and and that'll work out better." But uh, we're working on it. It's hard. It's hard when you're not a local from from another state and you're calling over there. You know what I mean? Like, um, but. We're working on it. So hopefully, you know, like I said, that's why we're trying to get, get a few here. We got some, we got some guys in other states putting in a lot of good work that hopefully we can see it pay off in the next couple of years. And like we're saying here, we're two or three percent, you know, like we're not expecting much, but if we can, we can have a few of these areas to kind of preserve what I think we all got into bow hunting for, you know, that, our kids can go elk hunting every year because that's, you know, that's what I, I see is I'm like, well, you know, the trickle down could be possibly in, you know, you, you just had a little boy, Brian, you know, in 20, 20 some years, man, maybe you can't just go elk hunting every year. That would, that'd be rough. That'd be hard for us guys that are obsessed with elk hunting, you know, so we'll see. 
we'll see what happens. Ken, Bob, can you talk about Nevada and what Tom Huebner and those guys are doing? Or well, they're the you know the traditional archers in Nevada. They're putting in some good work. We're gonna get him on here pretty soon, so I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to butcher what he's doing or anything, or or but I I uh, I I know that they they went and met and have with the Nevada bow hunters and they got support from their board to push forward what they got going on. So uh, hopefully those those guys are way more organized than us <laughs> and way smarter. So they're they're kicking butt. So well, then us as in TradQuest, but traditional archers of Oregon. Uh, we're kicking some butt too, and we've got some really smart people um, to to uh, not discredit that uh, our organization here in Oregon. And um, if anyone that's listening, if you're in uh, whatever state you're in, we we need people who are interested in this uh, to go ahead and you can get a hold of us, and we can help get you uh, you know share with what we know and what we've done with our uh, local agencies and how we've got the ball rolling. And I think a lot of people would be surprised, like we were talking about with, with, uh, the Pope and Young book, how the, um, you know, people were kind of concerned about the division. It's not about a division. We're all bow hunters. It's about creating bow hunting opportunity, uh, where, where it's being lost. Preserved. Preserved. Yeah. 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 And so definitely feel free to get a hold of, uh, us, uh, um, meaning traditional archers of Oregon or get a hold of TradQuest and we can get you. In contact with, uh, you know, we're all, me and Bob are on the board. We have some really good guys that are doing some good stuff and we're more than willing to help, uh, get the ball rolling anywhere. And you'd be surprised. I mean, I've talked to some guys in the Midwest who have liberal seasons like you guys in Montana, but they're have so much pressure in all the public lands and just creating one little WMU, just one little, you know, uh, wildlife management area. Uh, to traditional only or something like that could create uh, a place for guys to go and get away from the crossbows and 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 give themselves a uh, uh, a low pressure place to to do a deer hunt. Um, just little things like that add up. For sure. Well, you guys have any more to add on that? Now that we've solved all the world's problems. Yeah, uh, we'll I, I think you guys yeah. are really are kind of the the starting block to see how the some of this goes, and it's cool that you guys got the support there to try to get these going uh, we'll keep plugging along and we appreciate you guys uh you know chiming in we uh sure w- we know that our opinions we, we don't know everything obviously we think we're doing the right thing in areas and there's time for not and, and uh so that's why we uh bring it up just to talk about it and yeah. uh, hopefully make some good positive changes whatever those are so yeah and it does feel it does feel really good getting the not to be the dead horse, but getting the support from all of our bow hunters. And um, this hunt we have coming up with 55 tags, we will see once the, the tag draw happens. But um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's going to be very popular amongst all archers. It's a great hunt. It's in a great area. And I'm already hearing rumor of a lot of guys who've never shot a traditional bow who have already purchased them and anticipating drawing some of these tags, uh, wanting to, uh, to make the switch just for this opportunity. So I think that's pretty exciting and I hope it's met with that type of excitement. And yeah, so let's, uh, maybe transition into talking some, some bow hunting. All right. 
James right now is obsessed with hunting mule deer. He hates the jungle he lives in. <laughs> so, uh, James, why don't you get these guys going on their, we got, we got a couple mule deer masters on here. Yeah. Had, um, they had a great if, season. So, yeah. So if you guys have not listened to, um, Brian Colzer has been on twice. We had him back, uh, episode 82, um, talking whitetails. And then we had him on, uh, no, 62 talking whitetails. And then we had Jim on. 82 and then 85 we have brian back on and not to offend anybody but this is like my favorite episode we've done at least as of late i have been re-listening to it and re-listening to it and i'm gonna make you bashful brian but man you gave out some really good tidbits there um i i am totally obsessed with desert mule deer right now and that episode is, in my book, it's golden. Um, so I want to thank you again for sharing what you did in that episode. And I uh, would love to catch up uh, on your season. And if you guys look through Instagram, uh, Jim killed himself a slob out in the desert as well. So, yeah, if we could talk a little desert mule deer, uh, it would uh, definitely be appreciated on my end. Well, those are awfully kind words. Uh coming from you especially considering the the folks you've had on this podcast so or uh or maybe i just fooled the heck out of you here i don't know uh so humble <laughs> but uh no it was it was a great year for uh mule deer um I, I had to work a little bit harder this year there was less mule deer around uh than i had seen in the past um, or I shouldn't say less numbers were up, but it was, I had a heck of a time finding, uh, any decent bucks. There was, uh, young ones, um, around every corner, it seemed like, but I just wasn't finding that upper age class. So, uh, gosh, I think it took me nine days and three different trips down into Wyoming, um, before I even actually made, uh, a stock on a deer. But then all of a sudden it happened, uh, bang, bang, and, I scared one so bad that he's probably still running. He he might be in like Missouri by now. I don't know. Um, but that was the first good buck I found. What 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 went wrong there? Uh, I'll tell you th- about everything. Um, it all looked like it was going to go together as good as it could. I I had actually seen this deer two weeks prior, and I made a stock. Uh, so I, I lied. It didn't take me nine days to make my first stock. I think I was six days in on my first stock. I snuck up on this deer. I found him midday. We had a little storm come through and it got the deer on their feet. And I found him up on this point with another buck and I watched him drop over and I knew there was a couple cuts behind. And I figured as soon as that sun popped out, they'd be bedding back down. And I snuck around, got up, and kind of had to sneak in blind, but it was the only place for them to hide was one of these two little cuts. So pretty educated guess they were going to be in them. And I got in, and I ended up getting 10 yards from the wrong buck. And the big five-point was about 15 yards below uh, this other buck. And I had no option to go around. The wind wasn't given me anything besides just where I was and where I was at. And, uh, Oh, the gosh, that other buck ended up standing up to feed 
and I'm all tucked down in the sage and I got some great pictures of him, but, uh, he finally kind of picked out my form and buggered off down the gully and the big guy never smelled me, never saw me. And, uh, off he went down the gully too. So I just backed out. And, uh, when I got back down two weeks later, um, I went to check in the evening, this, these, these little fingers that these deer had been feeding in. And, uh, I'll be darned. There was a big one right there. It was absolutely perfect. Uh, he laid down at a great spot. I made a sneak in on him, but I had a kind of a little uh, alluvial fan worth of ridges coming down. And from 400 yards, I was trying to count little bumps and pieces of sagebrush and figure it out. And, uh, Long and short of it is I snuck up on the wrong patch of sagebrush. I missed by about 10 yards. And just when I figured that out is right when I saw a horn tip and an eyeball swivel my direction. And I blew him out from on the side of me at about at about 10 yards. And uh, then he got downwind to me and he smelled me. And I knew I was never going to see that deer again. Dang. Um, but, so uh, it was kind of a heartbreaker too, because he was the only good deer. He was the only deer I wanted to shoot that I had seen in eight days of hunting. And I figured, and I had, that was my last weekend because the next weekend I had a, a commitment and then my, the, my tag was done. The season was over, but, uh, I got lucky and, and the boys, uh, down there were moving some cattle a couple weeks prior and they told me they had seen a real good deer kind of in this obscure corner that I'd really never looked for deer before. And they said it was a real wide one. And I went looking and I ended up drumming him up. Uh, just couldn't have scripted it any better right at daylight, uh, than the very next morning and, uh, ended up putting him to bed and it took me until about four o'clock in the afternoon before the conditions and the wind got right for me to be able to make a stock. And I was able to sneak into, to 15 yards. And when he stood and kind of, uh, snipped at his back end, he turned his head away from me. I was able to lean over and, and put one right through the boiler room. Wow. That's awesome. Congrats. Were you shooting your uh, silver tip, Brian? No, I was shooting a Yellowstone longbow on this one. I decided 2019 was going to be my year of the longbow, and I killed a big black bear in Saskatchewan in May with uh, my longbow and uh, then figured I'd just going to stick with the longbow for the year. So yeah, everything I shot this year was with my Yellowstone longbow. Turned into a longbow guy. I like it. I like it. Kind of uh, just just felt like I needed to do something a little bit more primitive and work a little harder. And it's it's been a bit of a challenge. Uh, certainly, it's it's a different animal, that's for sure. But I'm I'm having fun. I'm like a little kid again shooting that thing. What uh what I know we we uh, learn stuff you know on every stock and on every hunt. Is there anything that comes to mind that uh, any lessons learned, any takeaways uh, from this year's season? I'm going to put you on the spot, I know. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was pretty much business as usual, just looking for deer in the in the same spot. Um, that, that stock I buggered, it was a tough one because there was no definitive landmarks or a piece of sagebrush that looked different than any other piece of sagebrush. And, you know how things change from one side of a, a big canyon to the next, especially from three, four hundred yards. 
Oh boy. Uh, it, it's just so important to know exactly where you are. I mean, from goofy little mud patches to tufts of grass and I missed it just by 10 yards. And that was all it took from 170 inch awesome five point being, you know, right in my lap to scaring the heck out of him and knowing I'm never going to see him again. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, uh, episode 85, if you guys should go back and listen to that a couple times. Um, I know I have, um, some of my biggest takeaways from that, um, been listening to a lot of desert mule deer podcasts as of late. And a lot of guys talk about, you know, finding their buck early on in the year and keeping their track, keeping a track of him from July and August and into the hunt. And, you know, you're hunting out of state as well as I'm hunting, you know, far from home. So that's not really possible. So really what I took from your podcast that we did with you is, it's not necessarily locating that buck as it is locating the places that hold those bucks. That's like kind of my takeaway from that. And then the shadows, as you talked about having that sun in your face and finding those shadows and finding how those shadows move and how those bucks are going to move accordingly with the shadows. Um, I did not arrow a buck in the desert this year, but I was awfully close. I missed one by... I I just hit the tufts of his hair. I mean, I I just barely missed him, and and it was a really good buck. And it I found him uh, because of the stuff I learned on there with the, those shadows and how they use those shadows. And I was finding bucks uh, throughout the whole day, going out looking all day long. As I started really realizing how in the hunting rimrock bucks and how those shadows move in those rimrocks and how that they move beds and adjust themselves to them. Instead of just looking for deer, I was looking in areas where the deer should be. And often, you know, you would catch an antler tip or they would pop their head up and put it back down, um, stuff like that. So, you know, I want to thank you again. It was really helpful, and um, I'm excited to get back there and uh, get revenge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, I'm glad that that helps. I mean, a lot of people I think do just go out and they look around for deer without knowing where or why to look for the deer, you know, and narrowing down the playing field enormously, uh, certainly ups your odds. And yeah, I mean, just getting as close as you did, you had a shot. I mean, technically you won the game. I mean, you got within stick bow range of a big mule deer in his bed the shot just didn't work out so i mean that that's still success right there yeah and i Uh, i i was across the canyon the big mistake i made like you had just alluded to was i was like i need to get to this little green thing on the rim rock and he's going to be here and there but when i got over there there were more green things than i had seen from over there and uh-huh. <laughs> I, I was really, I stood over top of him. I was really close to where he was at and then I moved over and, um, I just wasn't exactly sure where he was at. Um, once I got over there, I thought I had, I knew exactly where he was at, but I just, I was really, really close and close enough, but I, it just didn't work out, uh, for several reasons, but one of the biggest factors that would have really made all the difference in the world is if I could have, you know, draw myself a note, uh, just done a better job 
calculating his exact uh, spot before the stock. I think that that was, you know, I, if I could take it back, that's what I would have done differently. Yeah. Yeah, that can certainly make or break the deal, too. And who knows? I mean, he could have stood up and moved four feet on you also, too, somewhere in the course of your stock. And maybe you were sneaking up on the right spot, and he had just moved a tiny bit. And sure. That happens plenty, too. Sure. Um, so, yeah, thanks again on that. Are you? Uh, I'm sure you're anticipating September 1st to come soon, huh? Oh, gosh. I'm not wanting to wish away my life, but, uh, yeah, yeah, this winter and- thing is is not all as cracked up to be here in Montana and I'm ready for hot weather and, and you'll and, and I know we didn't, uh, I know you didn't fool us none, Jim. Uh, Jim will tell us, uh, cause the record books don't lie. Is that right, Jim? That is correct. The record books do not lie. There you go. So <laughs> we, we know, we got, uh, we know Colzer, uh, is the man. So why don't, uh, why don't we, uh, like I was talking about Jim, uh, on his Instagram page, he was also fortunate to take a beautiful velvet buck. Uh, that picture is so awesome with him with the cactus behind him. Um, I'm, I'm real excited to hear about, uh, about that hunt. If you wouldn't mind sharing it with us, Jim. Yeah, I'll do that. And, and you know, the, like most things that turn out really well, you got to start with a backstory and, you know, how did I get there in the first place? Um, and, you know, I'm going to shamelessly plug the Pope and Young Club, uh, because, you know, there, we all know that there's, there's different levels of bow hunter or bow hunting. Um, you know, you have the guys that, that, uh, just go out mostly for rec- uh, recreation and they go bow hunting because their friends go or it's easier to get a tag or whatever. And they're not that serious. And, and then you got the next level where the guys, um, you, you know, they're, too busy with work and family and, and not quite serious enough to, to make it a bigger priority. So they go on one or two hunts a year. And, and then you got guys like Brian and I who are just consumed with it. And, you know, we want to hunt everything, everywhere as much as we can. Really don't, I, I can't speak for Brian, but I don't really care what I'm hunting as long as it's something that, uh, you know, I have a decent chance of, of finding a good animal. I, I want to get out there and do it. And, you know, how's the best up way? I on a mouse last weekend. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah, I, and I caught him with my fingertips. He didn't know I was there. Oh, I saw, man. I saw that on Instagram. I don't care what I'm hunting either, whether it's a mouse or a mule deer or a moose. Do you, do you guys have uh, room for that in the record book, Tim? No, we do not. Sorry. <laughs> And don't don't even bring up adding animals to the record book, man. We've been <laughs> debating that for forty years, so <laughs> I'm getting tired of it. But but anyway, you know, if if you want to hunt everything, every place, the single best way to learn how to hunt places like that and where to go and and where to apply is through other bow hunters. And the, the single best way to get in touch with those bow hunters is to go to a Pope and Young Club convention. And, and I have learned so much from, from the guys that have been there and done that. And, and it's amazing how free a lot of them are with the information. But, you know, for instance, if you want to, you really want to hunt Kodiak, uh, Kodiak Island, Sitka blacktail deer, you can do that. Um, it's over the counter, no guide. All you got to do is get up there and do it. You know, there's dozens of people that have already done it that can tell you how to go about it and give you advice. And they may not tell you exactly where to go, but they'll tell you how to find out. 
And, and you know, that's kind of how this hunt came along. And, and it's not because I'm on the board of the Pope and Young Club, because this all started you know, about 10 years ago, uh, but it's through those connections. And just through those connections, uh, I, I started hunting uh, cow's deer in Sonora, Mexico, that, that it was an official Pope and Young Club sanctioned hunt where a bunch of us went down there and hunted on some ranches, do it yourself, hunting, paid a trespass fee, and uh, had some great times hunting cows deer on these ranches. And that all came about because of a couple of biologists that were working on the, the jaguar reintroduction or protection, the, the jaguar study in Sonora. And uh, they felt like uh, if they could get some bow hunters in there to hunt deer, um, then the ranchers could get some income off of the deer. And, and it was all an incentive to keep them from shooting, or not shooting, but poisoning jaguars and mountain lions. Um, so so you just never know where the next opportunity is going to happen. And and since I met the, the biologists, uh, uh, Ron Thompson and Kyle Thompson, his son, and worked with them through the the Jaguar project, and we got them some funding when I got on the board, and and uh, you know just stayed in contact with them. Um, both of these guys have been working for Turner Ranches, uh, the Ted Turner Properties, as biologists. They they don't work full time, but they do a lot of contract work, and they started their own um, outfitting company. They call it Primero Conservation Outfitters. And they're looking for opportunities kind of like we had in Mexico where they can get people to come in and hunt and support the local ranch in a way that gives them the incentive to uh, do different types of conservation. And uh, these guys, they're they're wanting to be more involved with the Turner Ranches, so they were able to get uh, three tags from, from this ranch, the Armanderas Ranch in southern New Mexico, to hunt deer during archery season. And uh, Ron sent me an email about two weeks before the uh, the hunt was to start and said, hey, we got these three tags. You want to go with us? And, and you know, if you're like me, you don't even think about it. You say, yeah, um, it sounds like an adventure. It's got to be good. Uh, but the problem was I already had a uh, January deer tag for New Mexico, which is a drawing um, and, and not all that easy to get. But long story short, I had to come home, find out whether or not I could turn that tag back in, which turns out I could. Uh, I didn't get my money back, but I was able to turn it back in and then get a tag for the private ranch, which wasn't a drawing. And I, I uh, show, show up down there to hunt not really knowing anything about it other than it's a 360,000 acre ranch. And, you know, I've Google earthed it and I've looked at the mountains and, and kind of get a feel for the land and, you know, talking to the ranch manager when, when I first get there, uh, between him and Ron and Kyle, they're saying, yeah, the, you know, the top end on the ranch is about 170 and, you know, we're seeing a decent number of, of that size deer. And there's a couple of them over here. They're running together. They look like twins. And then there's another one over here that's got a couple of drop tines. That's maybe not quite as big, but he's pretty cool looking. And, and, uh, you know, we got some water holes and, and, and the ranch manager, he says, you know, you, you need to go to, uh, this particular water hole. He said, that's my advice. Go hunt. If you want to hunt water, hunt that water hole. And I learned a long time ago, if I'm going to be a traditional bow hunter, 
and I want to be uh, continually successful, and, and I like to think ultra successful for what I do, you have to hunt animals you can get, a cl- get close to, and you have to hunt animals in places that allow you to get close or hunt them in ways that, that brings you close. And whether that's um, tree stands, ground blinds, um, you know, spot and stock, uh, it just depends on the animal or calling or, or just whatever you can do to get to 20 yards. That's, that's typically the goal. And because I've, I've come to realize, especially on things like elk, getting within 50 yards is a piece of cake. You can do that on almost every herd if there's any kind of cover. But then getting to 40 is twice as hard. Getting to 30 is twice as hard as that. And getting to 20 is really hard. So, so you hunt things that you can get close to. So I'm going to hunt water holes on this, on this hunt because it is fairly open country. And so I, I set up a blind at what's supposed to be the best water hole and, and they actually have a camera there at the, at the hole. So I pull a disc and look at it and, you know, the sun's just barely starting to come up and I'm sitting on my four wheeler going through the, the pictures. And while I'm doing that, a doe and a fork and horn comes over the hill and trying to come in and, and they get to about 30 yards and finally realize that there's somebody there and they take off running. And I thought, well, this is going to be good. And there was a decent number of deer coming in there. You know, desert mule deer, you're, you never have big numbers. Um, you're just trying to find a couple of the biggest ones in, in at the best, a section of ground. But, but this water hole had a big, tall three-by-four, uh, you know, probably low to mid-160s net as a three-by-four. And, you know, they're telling me 170 is about the top end. And I'm thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with that buck. I'm just going to sit here and shoot that buck. And you know how that works. It didn't work. The the one evening he finally decides to come in, the wind was a little funky. And he got to about 50 yards and just turned and walked off. And then I, I try a few different water holes and uh go and try to do some spot and stock out in some different areas. And, and so I'm starting to run out of time. And, uh, as, as time's moving on, I'm, I'm realizing, you know what, I'm seeing bucks driving in and out. And, uh, there's this one buck, um, that I've seen a couple of times, you know, late evening and early morning. And I think maybe I can get him. So, so the last couple of days I thought, I'm just going to have to spot and stock this buck. And you know how it is with bow hunting. I, I, get within two steps of getting a shot one evening. And then the next morning I watch him go over a saddle and, and I get up and try to glass him up and I can't find him. And, and it gets so hot in the middle of the day, uh, man, they get hard to find. Even if it's that open country, you have the cactuses and the scrub brush and, and they lay down in any shade they can find. And man, they get impossible to find. And then plus you get so hot, you can't hardly stand it. Um, so I'm spending the last couple of days hunting this buck and he's, he's actually, uh, I guess he'd be a six by six with brow tines. He's got a couple of extra forks, one on each side. And, and, uh, then, uh, what was going to be my, might've been my last day to hunt. I was hoping to get one more day to hunt. I go in looking for this buck in the morning and, and I spot him and he's got another buck with him and son of a gun, that's a lot bigger buck. And, so I, I try to get on them and they go over a saddle once again. And then I spend a couple hours trying to find them and I can't find them. And, 
And, but I'm thinking, man, I got to find that bike. So that afternoon it had sprinkled a little bit. So I went out a little earlier and, and got up on my glass and hill and picked them out. They were just across the road, you know, probably half a mile away. And, uh, they were above the road and there was a, a deep wash between me and the road. So I just, you know, pick, kind of picked them out, knew they were going to be moving. So I dropped down in the wash and worked my way up the wash and was just getting ready to cut up to the road and start looking for them, thinking they're going to be still a couple hundred yards away. And before I even get out of the bottom of the wash, the I see antlers coming down to me. And, you know, there's times when it's just pure luck. And, and when that happens, you just got to take it. And and these two bucks walk by single file at somewhere around 30 yards, the, uh, the smaller one in front and the bigger one in back. And, you know, I, I was able to, that's kind of hidden. I was able to knock up an arrow and he kind of looked at me as I come to full draw, but I don't think he ever did saw me. And, and, uh, you know, a good shot. He ran up the hill about 40 yards and fell over backwards and tumbled halfway back down to me. And, and that was the hunt, you know, a, a lot of it was luck. It was luck that I didn't kill one of the the smaller bucks earlier and, and luck that that buck showed up that I don't think anybody knew about. And, you know, then it was luck that they just walked right by me when I was making my final stock. So, so there, there's always the, uh, the idea that if you, if you keep at it long enough and you're around the animals long enough, eventually one of them's going to get close enough. And I think that's kind of my theory as a stick bow hunter when I'm hunting on the ground is you just got to be around the animals. And if you keep at it, eventually you get a shot. Man, that's a beautiful. And you wonder why the heck it's not that easy every time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, seems... you just kill yourself that all of a sudden it just gets handed to you right in your lap and it all happens. And you're like, well, why, why is it going to take another 30 tries for this to happen again? Yeah, how do I repeat? Yeah, yeah. yeah but, but after 40 years of it, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that that buck had carry, looked from the pictures to carry a lot of mass. Um, I mean, wow. It, it, and the whitetail you killed this year, both very massive animals in their antlers. A lot of mass. Is that uh, is that correct? I mean, it sure looked like it. Yeah, that, that is correct. And, and especially the mule deer, um, you know, both – the the antler below the the first forks it'd be the uh what the h3 measurement uh six and a quarter to six and a half um oh. and, and just massive and heavy and obviously a really old buck um and uh and he netted just a hair over 180 gross 186 oh. so he was a good 10 inches bigger than than my highest expectations. So wow, what and what for, was the date that you harvested him on? That was the fourteenth of September. Wow, he was was he the uh, how many bucks were still in the velvet that late in the game? Well, that that was kind of surprising to me. I guess it's just because it's farther south. Uh, everything was still in velvet. Wow, and and of course it was pretty mature. I don't think there was many days left. It was a pretty hard velvet, but. Yeah. But yeah, um, and, and you know, I'm I'm a taxidermist. I do my own work, and I always carry um, some formaldehyde with me to inject the the velvet and try to keep it if I can. And and so this is my second velvet mule deer that I've been able to preserve the velvet, and they they just make such a beautiful mount. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that for guys that do in that situation end up harvesting a, a velvet buck, um, not being a taxidermist? Is that something a, a regular guy can do in the field or? Yes, you can. And, and it, it really depends on your situation. Um, you know, if, if you're going up to Canada and you're hunting caribou, uh, the chances of you getting home with a caribou rack with the velvet still intact is, is going to be pretty tough, uh, unless you plan on leaving it there and letting it, uh, you know, letting a taxidermist take care of it. But as far as just the individual, um, you really can't get formaldehyde anymore. It's a controlled substance, but the, uh, the, most of the taxidermy supply houses carry a, a synthetic or safer type of embalming fluid. And, and what I use is it's called Balmex. Uh, get it from Van Dyke's taxidermy supply. And it was a substitute for formaldehyde during World War II when they, they literally couldn't have enough formaldehyde for all the dead soldiers they were dealing with. Um, but it's really affordable. You can get a pint for 10 or 12 bucks. So I always carry, uh, a, a syringe with me and a little bottle of Balmex. And, uh, uh if it's, Earlier in the season, there'll be quite a bit of blood in the velvet and especially down lower. So you, you kind of poke holes in the velvet down around the base and try to push the blood out of it. And, and you'll figure out pretty quick whether it's, there's blood or not. And then if you can get that done, then you take the syringe with the embalming fluid and you start working it up through the veins. You know, I, I start at the bottom and work my way up because there's, it's easier to get in the veins and, Sometimes you can see it swell just going all the way up the antler. Um, but most of the time the, the velvet's mature enough that the, the blood's kind of gone. The blood flow is really dried up. And, and in those cases, I'll, I'll just sit down with the rack in my hand and, and inject, you know, all up and down the antlers, whatever will go in, even if it's just a tiny bit and most of it's squirting back out at you. But I'll just, you know, poke a hole every inch going up one side of the antler and then up on the top, do that back down and then on the inside and, and just do everything you can to get some of that, um, embalming fluid under the velvet. And, uh, I, I have in the past, I have done that and that's all I did. And the, the velvet survived. Um, is now, there, uh, is there an alternative to that? Well, yeah, the, the alternative is to have it freeze-dried. That's okay. probably the best way to do it. But you have to have a taxidermist that has a, uh, a freeze-dry, I don't know what you call it, machine or oven or whatever, right. to hold a whole mule deer rack. I've heard of guys um, using bor- like a wet borax solution to preserve it till they got to the taxidermist, or is that even really just is that just a wise tale? You know, I, I think that people have done that too. Um Another thing that can be done is, uh, um, you know, I, I know a guy that used to take, just take a wire brush and you could do the same thing with just a needle or a pen or something. And he'd kind of pound the velvet with the wire brush to put little tiny holes in it. And then he'd pour turpentine over it. And, and the turpentine theoretically kind of dries everything out. And, and, you know, the drier it is, the least likely it is to rot. That's mm-hmm. kind of what you're going for. Another option is, I know taxidermists that have a 
55 gallon barrel of, of methanol or acetone or, you know, something like that is, that is really dry, kind of like a white gas, like a Coleman fuel mm-hmm. and just soak, soak them in that if they have a big enough vat of it. And, and that's kind of what I do now. I do the, the formaldehyde injection right when I kill it the same day or the next morning, just as soon as I can. And then when I get it home, um, you know, if I can't put it in the freezer for a while, then I'll, I'll soak it in. I, I use acetone. Um, and, and, and that works fine. And, uh, this mule deer, I didn't have enough acetone to do it. So I'd already done the formaldehyde. So I soaked one side for 24 hours, tipped it over and soaked the other side. And, and I did that for, I think, eight days. And, and does he end up in a different cat? Does he end up in a, is there a velvet category for the Pope and Young book? There certainly is. Yeah. We, we have a velvet category for every antlered animal. Um, Sadly, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't know that it'll ever change, we don't recognize world records in the velvet category. Um, the theory is, since it's it's more soft tissue, it's harder to be as accurate. Um, and and I think it's just bigoted prejudice. They're they're against us guys that want to shoot things in velvet. Mm. Um, <laughs> they should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> so Ed, listening or, or Roy, you guys, that's my opinion. Um, that's, that's, our, that's our record chairman, you know, records committee guys. No, I understand, I understand the theory of not having a world record in velvet, but, yeah. you know, I'm still going to some grief over it. Yeah, you got to make a poke here and there. Is that um, yeah. that formaldehyde alternative, is that, is that like, safer? I, I know that I've used the formaldehyde several times before, and the, the first time I did it, you know, I was – doing my dad and my dad's buck and my buck and i i didn't have i mean my eyes were burning i was like man what is this stuff and my dad's like oh it's fine i used to use it at the bulb farm blah 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 and then my <laughs> wife read the the warnings on it and was like oh my god <laughs> you know you're gonna die this is horrible uh is that what do you call it ball max or something is that is correct b-a-l-m-e-x and yeah it's, it's way safer because formaldehyde is controlled and and you know, I, I don't even know where to get it anymore. I know taxidermists that, taxidermists that do get it, but I'm not sure how. Uh, so the Balmex is basically over the counter, and, and it's it's not as good. Um, but I've used it for quite a while, and uh, has, when when you're mounting birds, uh, for instance, a bird's foot, whether it's a duck or a turkey or a pheasant, you really can't skin that foot out and uh, you know get the flesh out and tan it and put it back on. So they've been using this Balmax for bird's feet uh, probably since the fifties. And, uh, and of course a bird foot can dry out better, <clears throat> not as likely to rot, but you know, it's a great alternative. I, I haven't lost any velvet yet um, doing it this way. Awesome. Well, do you got any, uh... Jim, I, I had a question for Jim here. Um, when you were uh, hunting the mule deer on the water, were were you getting any decent bucks wanting to come to the water during daylight, or were they all hitting after dark? So, uh, just getting back to the story, the first day I hunted, um, I had does and a forked horn come in, and uh, I ended up leaving the blind at about three to go check some of the other cameras and look at some of the other water holes, and actually to go try to find that buck with the drop tines. Um, 
but the camera showed that nothing came in that day. Um, the second day I hunted a different water hole trying to find those two 170 twin bucks. And, uh, they sent me to a dry water hole and then I, the next water hole took forever to find and kind of a waste of a, a day. Um, and, uh, so then the third day is when, when actually another buck was coming in at a four point that I was thinking about shooting. And then I saw that big three by four coming in behind him. And you know how it is with a ground blind, you see something coming, you tend to kind of lean back and keep your head down and don't see me, don't see me, don't see me. And, and I kind of went to the right where I couldn't see him and they never came in and never came in. And, and by the time I realized they weren't coming in, that they were gone. So, so that was, that was the third day. The, so the fourth day I moved the blind to the other side of the water hole and, and nothing came in at all. And so after that, I decided, you know, he probably winded me. He's probably not coming back and I'm going to have to do something different. Um, but that's the beauty of trail cameras. If if you can get the trail cameras there, you 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 know whether or not they're coming in during the daylight. And uh, it was about fifty fifty whether they drank during the day or during the night. And you know you you just roll the dice and you sit there and hope hope you're there at the right time. I'll be darned. Up in Wyoming, where where I've been doing all my hunting, uh, boy, the bigger mule deer bucks just do not come to water during the day. It's like virtually never. You might catch them at gray, gray light in the morning coming back from a tank, but they were not at the tank in daylight. So I've never, I've never even tried hunting a mule deer at water because it, it, they just won't do it. That, that's interesting. Um, I, I killed my first good mule deer at water back in 2000, and uh, it was up in northwest Colorado. And first morning, opening morning, you know, right at sunup. Here comes this 30-inch buck over the hill and got the binoculars on him. And, well, shoot, he was just a three-by-four, and he didn't even have brow tines. But, man, he was wide. and But he's wide, he come, yeah. <laughs> he come he come into the water, and, and you know, I shot him. Um, so that that is the – I guess that's the only other mule deer I've shot on water. Um, but, I, I, you know, this ranch, I did have the advantage of – they hadn't been bow hunted in 10 years from what I understand. Um, so that's, it's a totally different situation. They're still spooky as heck. And if they wind you, they're gone. But, um, but it's not like hunting the the places where they, they have a hundred tags in August, a hundred in September and all, you know, every month, all winter long. It's just, it's different hunting. Exactly. What what, what kind of ground blind are you using, Jim? Maybe the, because you got to find a taller one for a recurve, right? I've only I've only shot one antelope out of a ground blind. And yeah, my uh, I don't shoot good out of them. Yeah, I, I my favorite one is a uh, a baronet. Is that it, baronet? Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's a big mic, and big and mic. it's tall. Uh, and it's I love it for two reasons. One is it's tall, so it gives you plenty of room. And the other reason the, the it has corners that open up really low. Um, so, you know, you, you don't have to worry about raising up a little bit if you're setting down, um, and it's tall enough. You don't have to worry about scrunching down if you're, if you're trying to shoot. 
So I really like that one, and they're not terribly expensive. I think they list for under two hundred bucks. Yeah, I've, I've um, been inside that one, and it is tall, like eighty four inches or eighty six inches, but it's kind of a plasticky material, and it gets hot in those blinds, really hot. Well, I I just thought that was just a ground blind. They all get hot. Yeah. They're brutal. No, no the uh, the um uh, what is that? The Primos double bowl. Is more like a fabric, at least the old ones. And I had, to, I had, I was hunting antelope out of two different blinds, and it was way less hot than uh, I liked the room of that big mic, but it just seemed to get so much hotter. I don't know. That was just my experience. Well, I saw, I saw some at Cabela's a while ago, and they got—I don't remember the brand—but when you're looking out from inside, like the front wall of it. It's like you're looking through a screen door. Like you can see everything. But then when yeah. you go around to the outside and look in, it's camo. Yeah, those are the new ones. It, you can I, see all the way around you. It's magic. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty sweet because I, for me, and this was at least my excuse for missing a bunch of antelope when I did it, was was shooting through a little hole or a little opening in the window. Like I'm just, I'm not used to, you know, I shoot instinctive and that's just not in my sight picture, you know what I mean? Like I just, I'm not seeing my whole rise or whatever. Like I was, I was having a heck of a time. So maybe that would help me because I'd still get the same full view, you know? Uh, Brian, I, I want to share a, a quick one with you. I was uh, going after a real good buck years ago in the Sage in the rolling Hills and he was bedded with several bucks and I'd waited for him to rebed and he rebedded a couple times. And I went after him at like, I think it was one o'clock in the afternoon and I got to about 35 or 40 yards and all of a sudden they all got up and I thought, you know, I thought I got busted and they just started walking away and I'm like, Oh man, what's going on here? And I'm keeping my eye on them. And they walked about a hundred yards out to this water tank that was on this dirt road and they watered. And then they turned around and they came back and they bedded in the same spot, like within 40 or 50 yards of me. Gosh, that's insane. Yeah, I, it didn't work out for me. But, um, yeah, they just got up and decided that they were going to drink. And then they returned to the oh. same with uh, practically the same spot. So I, they do it sometimes. But um, Yeah, well, I guess if you're lucky in there when they decide to do it. But I've never... I've never had that chance <laughs> to have them yeah. do that. And like, even to, uh, the place I'm hunting now down in Wyoming, I do a lot of state and BLM land, but, uh, uh, some folks I know down there got a nice piece that borders a lot of this. And, uh, uh, the boys put out trail cameras and on some of their stock tanks, it's real dry, nasty stuff down there. And the bucks will come in, but it's, never daylight pictures it's always in the dark when the bucks come down and snag some water yeah I, I i sat on that water tank a few days later and of course nothing ever came in so it's oh, uh, of course they probably that's the one time they probably ever did it in their life and you wouldn't yeah, it yeah yeah so well that's awesome oh that's good well you guys got any more uh tips for a mule deer for me i'll take anything you guys got no, the, the first tip is to uh, to get a license, uh, whether it's a hard-to-get license or over-the-counter, in, in a place where there are good bucks. Yeah. And you just got to get out there and do it. 
And I, I think right now is probably about as good a time to hunt trophy mule deer as any time in my life. Um, they've really done a great job managing a lot of different states for, for good bucks, um, with the exception of maybe New Mexico. Uh, but, but every place else, there's well, darn really it, that, was, that was going to be my next question. Is Montana. I, I was going to start looking at, I was telling Bob I need to start buying points and looking into the opportunities of of the western states if I really want to get serious about uh, hunting mule deer. And the only one I haven't heard much about is New Mexico, and I was wondering how it works down there. Yeah, New Mexico is it's it's all, all a draw for for all the New Me- or the all of the mule deer tags unless you get a private land voucher um, for any unit except the northwest corner. Uh, if you get a if you get a private land voucher, you can buy an over the counter tag, but it is good for only private land. Um, you can use it on any private land, but it's only good on private land. You can't get it on the forest. And New Mexico doesn't have any preference points, so it's just 100% lottery, luck of the draw. And and the northwest part of the state used to be primo, primo mule deer hunting, but it, it has drastically gone downhill since I've been here. I've been here 32 years, and 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 they did kill some pretty good bucks this year, but the, just the numbers have gone down more than anything. And and I accredit that mostly to predators. They've they've done a one done away with a lot of the sheep herders in the country. And and when you have sheep, you have no predators. They just take care of that for you. Um, so uh, um, the the quality's down. There's still some great opportunities. It's still a, a you, good tag to put in for, but uh, it's not like it used to be. Do you know offhand, uh, as far as the uh, Pope and Young book goes? what the premier states are for, I know Colorado ranks high for the high country hunts, but for as far as desert mule deer goes, do you know uh, uh, what the top states are? I'm guessing probably Nevada, but do you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to tell because we don't differentiate from desert to mountain. So you kind of have to look at right. the desert states, just, just see what the numbers are. But if you give me a second, I'll look it up in the statistical survey um I, I can just give you states but yeah colorado's always number one and it'll be interesting to see who's number two okay, arizona is, brian what's arizona arizona what's that bob what's your guess on number two i don't know i was just sitting here uh trying to an educated guess i don't know i would Somebody. think maybe uh nevada that seems pretty logical to me. I was thinking Nevada or Arizona. Yeah, Utah maybe. Well, it's it's Utah. There you go. It's Utah. So, so yeah. For for instance, the the thirtieth uh, recording period, which is a two year period, uh, twelve hundred and three from Colorado, uh, seven sixty one from Utah, four fifty four from Alberta, three eighty eight from Wyoming. And then Oregon, 305, Idaho, 271, Nevada, 259, Arizona, 239, Montana, which is really sad, 233, wow. and then New wow. Mexico. Wow, I didn't think Oregon was going to fit, fit sit, sit so high. Well, there's yeah, it's not a little many tags in Nevada, and Montana has a rifle rut tag. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's it. We're never going to have good mule deer. 
Yeah. Uh, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and in New Mexico last year, they started giving uh, youth tags during the rut, rifle youth tags. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Herd was already struggling, and, and for instance, 2B up here where, where I live, they give 150 youth tags during the rut, you know, the week of Thanksgiving for, for youth. And, you know, I'm all for giving youth the opportunity to hunt, but to, to turn the rut, and what what were they thinking? Because I don't know what it's like where you guys live, but during the rut, they just stand next to the road with the does and just look at you with their tongue hanging out. Yeah, with the rifle, it's... Yeah. yeah. What, what, yeah where's the... Why we don't have good mule deer in Montana is our, our mule deer season is basically, it, it's over the counter for... I mean, 99% of the state, there's a couple of units that are special draw. And uh, a few years ago, I was kind of beating around the bush a little bit, trying to see if we could get uh, even just like the last two weeks. Our, our season runs through Thanksgiving here, our general season. And if we even just cut two weeks of it off of not shooting mule deer, and oh my gosh, you'd have thought I'd have just... Uh, pretty well farted in church when i brought that up i mean people looking at me going you mean i can't go shoot that mule deer standing on the side of the road on thanksgiving weekend like i have every year of my life i heard they took a survey on that i heard they took a survey on that recently in montana i was just listening to this on a podcast and it was like 80 percent of the residents wanted to continue hunting during the rut with their rifles uh knowing absolutely ridiculous and blows my mind yeah, knowing that uh, that it would uh, lower the quality of deer. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a bad deal. Does New Mexico yeah, have rut opportunity for archery uh, on mule deer? Well, barely. Uh, we we can hunt them January first to the fifteenth, and there's okay. occasions when you're getting that tail end of the rut. But I, I tell people to draw that tag, man. If you don't hunt the first day, you're missing out on the best day because yeah. by about the fifth day, those bucks they leave the does and they can get really hard to find. Okay, so Arizona is probably the place to go for that. Yeah. So there's there's no better testament on on how to manage deer than than just looking at a, the Pope and Young records and and just look at whitetail. You know, you consider Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, and Minnesota, you know, there's four states kind of all in a row there, and for whatever, for for obvious reasons, Kansas and Iowa uh, kill three or four times as many record book bucks than Nebraska and Minnesota. But you know, they're they're all the same habitat. the The difference is Nebraska and Minnesota they have rifle hunts during the rut, and it's obvious. We we all know it. But it'll never change. Makes a lot of sense. Well, do you guys? Uh, maybe we should put out. Uh, I'd also I'd like Jim to tell us a little bit more about uh, where guys who aren't members to how they can find the Pope and Young Club and um, maybe up and coming events and uh, what's what you guys have on your calendar for 2020 and then maybe some closing uh, thoughts uh, to wrap this up. I know you guys are busy. Okay. Um, you know, it's getting so easy to find stuff. Uh, hello, Google. Tell me about the Pope and Young Club. And <laughs> that, that's all you got to do. And it gives you options. So, so obviously, just go to the website for the Pope and Young Club. 
Okay. And, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of things on the website, but you know, what I look at all the time is the records. And so you click on the records tab. Uh, if you're interested in a record book over on the upper right, you click shop, obviously. Um, so, so what's coming out, we got the record book coming out. We, this year, we are beginning our first ever annual convention since just right after our beginning. Um, we, we've had biennium conventions every other year, uh, based around our two year recording periods. And, uh, the, the convention from the beginning was based on recognizing the top trophies entered in that two year recording period and, and giving awards to the biggest and recognizing the world records and, and yada, 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 all the things you do at a Pope and Young convention. But last year we elected to start doing annual conventions for a couple of reasons. And, and one was our, our members want to get together more often. Uh, two is, uh, for financial reasons, it's, it's hard to have an every other year convention expecting that to fund the activities for two years. Um, and, and, you know, the other reason is we, we have our corporate partners that support the club. It's difficult for them to plan on coming to the, uh, convention when it's only every other year. And then some of them aren't real sure which year it is. So, so if we're consistent, we have a convention every year. Um, gives us more opportunity to get together and, and more opportunity to get our members in front of our corporate partners, which are a combination of outfitters and manufacturers and, and, uh, you know, just industry people. Um, and, you know, get, we have the programs and we have seminars and all the fun stuff. So this year our convention is in Chantilly, Virginia. Um, we've, People have been screaming for us to have a convention out east somewhere, and we finally bit the bullet and, and did that, found a great location in Virginia. And uh, it's going to be an opportunity for some of the East Coast guys to drive to it that uh, maybe they've never been to a convention before. And that is the last weekend in March. It's Thursday through Saturday, March 26th to the 28th. And uh, we're going to have a great time. We're, we're It's always a great time. And... Yeah, uh, I will no longer be president. My third term expires March 1st, so uh, I will have way less responsibility, and I'm going to be able to get back to having just a blast at the convention. I won't have nearly as much pressure as I've had the last six years. Wow, sounds like fun. That's awesome. And yeah, I know you guys are on social media, too. Uh, we follow you guys on Instagram, so if you guys don't know yeah. about it, check it out. Um, you guys got any uh, any closing thoughts on our conversation today? I think it was a it was a great time and it was fun to just catch up with you guys and thank you, Jim, for uh, uh, serving those three terms. You've uh, I think you've done a very very good job in your position. Yeah, well, thank you. And man, I, I just I love being able to get on here and talk about the club to begin with, but more importantly, talk about bow hunting because you know that's what I do. That's that's my life. It's it's sad, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, you know, I, I typically do six to nine hunts a year, and uh, you know, almost all do it yourself. And and a lot of it's thanks to the connections I've made through the club. And uh, there's just some great people there that are fun to hang around and and fun to hunt with. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. 
Yeah, for me in closing, I'd like to second that. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for what uh, both you gentlemen are doing, um, all the organizations you guys are involved in, uh, all the giving back that you do to bow hunting. Um, it's it's impressive. It's stuff that you guys are taking your time out from family, time out from hunting to uh, to give back to uh, this uh, lifestyle that we love so much. And, you know, it's easy for guys to sit on the sidelines and whine and complain uh, about this or that. But, you know, if, if you guys uh, do it, you know, lead by example and um, take a play out of these guys' books, get involved and uh, make a difference. Um, I have a lot of respect for you guys, and uh, I thank you. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. We're on Instagram. Check us out there. You can also send us an email if you've got anyone that you can think of you'd like to hear on the podcast we're always looking for you maybe that guy that no one's ever heard of hit us up at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com keep the wind in your face pick a spot and shoot straight Get outside, so I can.